Now, one of the realities of our modern, fast-paced world is stress. And, you know, there's family stress, uh, there's work stress, there's health-related stress, um, political stress, financial stress, you name it, and you can get stressed out about it. And, you know, we hear folks say things like, oh, don't mind him, he's just stressed out. Or uh, we tell our kids, don't bother daddy this evening because he's had a really stressful day. Uh, you know, and oftentimes, even when we go to the doctor about our physical, will look at us and say, you're just under too much stress. And it's the kind of thing that can manifest itself in all kinds of ways, like peptic ulcers, high blood pressure, certain kinds of strokes. Even migraine headaches can come on because of stress, all of which are listed in the annals of medicine as illnesses that can be produced by stress and by our responses to it. And despite the volumes that have been written about it and the amount of research that's been studied about it, uh, few subjects have more rhetoric and less remedies than stress. Uh, leaving one researcher to say uh, of stress, the diagnosis is telling, the prognosis is terrifying, and the prescriptions are tenuous. Because, uh, you know, when solutions are offered, they're oftentimes way too simplistic, and, and they just kind of uh, patch over the cracks but never really heal that wound. Because, you know, they'll tell you things like, well, just relax. Uh, just slow down, just stay out of stressful situations and avoid stressful people, like that's really possible, right? Uh, get more exercise or balance your diet or drink less caffeine and the list of temporary remedies uh, grows longer every day as folks really struggle uh, to find some real answer for the stresses of life. In fact, one of the, the articles that I read in, in research for this message, a man uh, wrote about that kind of thing, he said, uh, my therapist, this is a guy named Jim, he said, my therapist recommended uh, that for fresh air and relaxation that I take a trip to relieve some stress. And so in the course of the writing, he, he tells the story, he says, so I booked an alpine vacation to get away from it all. Uh, and he says that the scenery was idyllic, uh, the weather was perfect. Uh, but he says that uh, while he was away, he started to develop this, this big sore in the back of his mouth. Uh, but he, he finished his vacation, he got back from the trip and as soon as he got back home uh, he made an appointment with his family doctor who took one look at him and diagnosed his problem as likely due to stress and and the story, by the time you get to the article the story continues he says so uh, this is his him writing he says so i told him but doc i've just gotten back from a two-week vacation in the mountains to which the doctor shrugged and replied well you know jim travel can be stressful A lot of help that was, right? <laughs> and it almost makes you wonder who to listen to and if anyone can really help. Uh, and you know, the same can be true when, when we approach the scriptures looking for answers to stress. Uh, you know, we may wonder if the Bible written thousands of years ago and in a vastly different culture from ours could have much to say about uh, the things that we deal with and the daily anxieties that come up in the 21st century. But then you come to a psalm like Psalm 31, like Psalm 31 that we're going to look at today, and you realize that the times and the places may change, uh, they may be different, but the stress that we feel and the problems that we face are really just a part of the universal human experience, uh, an experience we can share with the psalmist David, but more than that, uh, come to a realization that there is an answer, uh, an answer that may not address every single issue of why 
certain things happen. But an answer that uh, does show us how to deal with the ups and downs of this world and how those very things that we go through may be preparing us for whatever God has in store for us next. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 31 uh, that's superscribed as to the choir master, a psalm of David. And he writes, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servants. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those that fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful and abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. You know, over the course of these last 30 songs, we've talked a lot about the life of King David and some of the difficulties and the hardships that he's faced. Uh, and I don't want to replow that same territory today, but I do think this psalm of his uh, points us in a direction that we haven't talked a whole lot about in, in this setting, in Sunday school, but uh, not so much here. Uh, a subject that's right at the very core of our Reformed and, and congregational beliefs, and that is the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God. And I want to uh, do that with this psalm because, you know, we could use it to commiserate with David, we could 
could get in there with him and look at some of those things. And it is good sometimes to compare our circumstances to others who've gone through similar things. But just commiserating doesn't always help, does it? And it doesn't necessarily help, on the other hand, for me to minimize the experience. Well, you know, whatever pressures you're going through right now, uh, whatever pressures may come up in the coming year, uh, that David faced equal or a greater one, so just buck up and deal with it, right? Because uh, there's always somebody that's worse off than you are. It's not very helpful, is it? So I think for today it's enough for us to agree that uh, this psalm isn't coming to us out of the ivory tower of a king, but from the crucible of a man who's been there. Uh, somebody who's been where we are and who's felt the things that we've felt and experiencing the things that we do. So then given all of that, uh, where is it that we need to go? And what is kind of the overarching perspective that we need to get us up in the morning and to look at our lives and at the world around us in a way that we might not have done before and you know, do that with a confidence that makes life a life worth living and one that is useful for the sake of the kingdom. And the key to that, I think, in this particular psalm, I think David gives it to us right in the middle. Right in, in fact, right in the middle of two verses, verses 14 and 15, if you're still there, uh, in that center section between them both, where he says, You are my God. My times are in your hand. And what I want to show you is that once you realize uh, that truth that your times are in God's hands, and not just realize that, but actually start to live like that's true, how the rest of the, the seemingly uh, stray threads of our lives start to pull together into a pattern that we can recognize. Because, you know, this psalm actually has a pattern. Uh, if you're looking at it closely, it has a repeating cycle. Uh, and it's one that maybe you're all too familiar with because, you know, in the opening verses, the psalmist is anxious, he's tormented. And, and then as we read a little bit further on, just a, a few verses later, he seems to be in a position of assurance and confidence where everything seems to be just fine only to return again to a state of distress almost immediately and if you've lived in this world any time at all you already know this kind of cycle of of pain and joy and and then just going right back around again and you know it's not an unusual experience in our christian pilgrimage or just even of human life in general because you know truth be told most all of us are uh, a jumble of emotions, a kind of a mashup of experiences of the good, the, the bad, and the ugly all kind of just swirled together. And so if we know that to be true, and I think it is for most of us, then as I said, the key issue becomes what do we do with all of that? And maybe more importantly, how do I as a believer shape the way in which I view this world that I'm confronted with every day, knowing that my times are in God's hands? And I don't say this too often, but uh, if you are in the habit of uh, underlining or highlighting things in the Bible, this would be a passage to do that with. Uh, the section that says, my times are in God's hands. Uh, when, when did you guys say that with me? My, my times are in God's hands, right? My times are in God's hands. And you know, those six words are uh, an affirmation of a person who knows himself or herself to be uh, regardless of praise or blame, uh, in times of pleasure or in times of pain and in times of delight or in spite of disaster, to be under the superintending care 
and direction of Almighty God. And you know, one of the first things that that means is that I'm not trapped in the grip of blind forces and random chances. Because you see, since our times are in God's hands, we're not subject to the winds of fate, despite the fact that most of the folks that we know in the world believe that we are. Uh, whether it's the working class guy that we know that buys stack after stack of scratch-off tickets hoping to strike it rich, uh, or the, the jaded Ivy League professor that's trying to sound sophisticated and, and scholarly, uh, like Professor Richard Dawkins, who, who wrote of our world. Uh, he says, in a universe of physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, others are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. He said, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we would expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And you know, that's really kind of the idea behind that old Doris Day song, right? Que sera, sera. Uh, what, whatever will be, will be. The, the future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. But you know, that's not the Christian viewpoint because you and I as followers of Christ can look at the universe and we can say, uh, come what may, Lord, you are my God and my times are in your hands. And I'm not trapped by fate, but I am being trained in the school of God's providence. I am being trained through this in the school of God's providence. And, you know, that word providence might be one you've heard tossed around before in different kinds of ways, but just the plain old dictionary definition of providence is this. <clears throat> it is the governance of God by which he with wisdom and love cares for and directs all things in the universe. It's the governance of God by which he with wisdom and love cares for and directs all things in the universe. Now, John Calvin said of it, providence is the great security in life and the highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. Uh, he also said that for us, for the Christian, uh, his solace is to know that his heavenly Father so holds all things in his power, so rules by his authority and will, and so governs by his wisdom that nothing can befall except he determine it. That's pretty comforting. You know, our Lord Jesus affirmed the same truth when he told the crowd in Matthew chapter 10, he said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father? Fear not, therefore, because you are of more value than many sparrows. And do you know what that means? You know what that really means? It means that at times sparrows are still going to fall to the ground, but not without the permission of their creator. It means that by his permissive will, God allows things to take their course, but they don't ever take him by surprise. And it means that if he is so sovereignly involved in the life cycle of a sparrow, that he is profoundly involved in the circumstances of your individual life and the lives that we face, whether we are sick or well, whether we are rich or poor, whether we are happy or sad, we can be assured that the fatherly providence of God has permitted whatever things he's permitted and that he's done it for our good and for his glory and that one day, one day, he's going to make it clear to us why. And I don't know, you know exactly how all of you are feeling today, but it occurred to me while I was writing this that this message might just be for Vicky and me because we have a a few things going on right now that don't feel particularly providential, uh, like having her mom laid up at home 
and my dad in Pennsylvania facing the prospect of surgery and uh, wondering how we're going to take care of both of them at the same time, uh, wondering why they both had to get sick at the same time, and for that matter, why they had to get sick at all. And that's really the point that I'm getting at, because when you start going down, down those rabbit holes of how come, how come this and how come that, uh, you might just drive yourself crazy and end up with a lot more stress than where you started out. But that's exactly the time to say, you are my God, my times are in your hands. Uh, and right now you may think, uh, be thinking, well, pastor, that uh, sounds okay for a theological discourse, but it doesn't help me feel any better about what I'm going through. Or you may be thinking, wow, uh, with advice like that, I hope you are out of town if I find myself in need of comfort next week. Uh, or you may be wondering, how am I supposed to go out into the world and share a faith like that and convince people that in any real sense there's deliverance in Jesus from all of these vagaries of life? And the truth is, from that kind of perspective, you can't. You really can't. But I want you to, to, to think with me for a minute, because I'm going to try to make you just a little bit uncomfortable to show you the real power of God's comfort. And, and just think about this for a minute, because this is really where the rubber meets the road, and that is, it's God who determines what deliverance is and not us. It's God who determines what deliverance is and not us. Because see, if I got to determine what deliverance was, I, I would say it was uh, the easing of pain and the removal of difficulty and the filling up of bank accounts and the escaping of trials. Uh, and praise God, it many times is all of those things. But sometimes, sometimes God's definition of deliverance isn't necessarily what you and I think it ought to be. Consider uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were standing at the mouth of the fiery furnace about to be tossed in. <clears throat> and they said to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3, the God whom we serve is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we'll never serve another. Even if he doesn't, we'll never serve another. And then the king said, well, in that case, you're free to go. No. He pitched him in the furnace anyway. But you know what the Bible says that God stepped right in there with them? That he stepped right into the furnace and when he brought them back out of that pit, everyone in that huge crowd had to witness and they saw that the fire hadn't touched them and not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing wasn't scorched and they didn't even smell like smoke. We can't even have a fire pit on Friday nights without Vicky saying to me, leave those clothes outside, they smell like smoke. Right? <laughs> These guys didn't even smell like smoke. Consider for a minute the lament of the prophet Habakkuk who wrote, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the flood, and there be no herds in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Right? The God of my Jesus. And he's saying that even if there's complete economic collapse, God would still take care of him. And you and I need to get to that same place too uh, where we trust in nothing else but God. Because ultimately, one day, uh, we're all facing that last day when no other earthly props and no amount of money, no amount of caring people or no amount of health care 
uh, is going to be able to help us because sometimes God's deliverance is in helping us to face the ultimate. Uh, think of uh, poor old Job, the, the man who lost everything except his, his life and, and his wife, and she wasn't a whole lot of help. Uh, but you know what he said to God? He said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even if he kills me, I'm going to trust him. Because for him, God was still God and worthy of worship and trust in tragedy as in blessing. Or, or lastly, think of uh, the Apostle Paul who said of God's overarching care uh, after a lifetime of living in the heights of victory and the depths of despair. He could say, uh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, so no, uh, none of those things may necessarily make you feel better. But they can help you know better. They can help you know better. And until you and I know God and trust God that way, we're not likely to ever feel comforted or relieved or at peace with the ups and downs of life. And I don't mean in a fatalistic way. I'm not talking about a stoic, stiff upper lip. Uh, I'm not talking about living life through gritted teeth to, to grin and bear it. But just to intentionally return to the sturdy peg of God's divine sovereignty that holds our faith in place. That, that holds it in place at the cross. Whereas, as you're going to see in just a second, uh, a little more of Psalm 31 shows up. Uh, another similar line from Psalm 31 shows up, this time in the lips of our Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 23, uh, verse 44, it says, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus called out in a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He said, you're my God. My times are in your hands, even if it doesn't look like it. Even if it doesn't feel like it. Even if nobody else believes it. And entrusting himself into the hands of the Father, he endured the supreme stress of the cross in my place, bearing my sin, doing it in the midst of incredible circumstances, doing it uh, even though his mother was standing there watching, but willing to leave her, doing it hearing the mocking of the crowds around him of the world, but dying to heal its wounds, hanging there uh, to make me holy, suffering for my sanctification, and in spite of it all, snatching the crown of victory from what looked like the yawning jaws of total defeat. But he trusted himself into God's hands so that he was willing to be bloody and broken so that he could become the bread of life and the cup of redemption for all who believe and for all who receive him at the table that we're about to approach. Will you pray with me?